I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Let me explain to you what we're doing. We're about to start a new series, something I'm very excited about doing, even though I'm not entirely sure how it's going to play out as we kind of unpack it and go through it. The series is going to be on the topic of how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. That's like the easy to grasp title. A more fancy title would be the theology of typology. Um, And what we're going to do is we're going to tackle this issue of Jesus in the Old Testament. That, That is God purposefully and deliberately placing content in the Old Testament that was meant to be clear and even sometimes unclear pictures of Jesus, analogies of Jesus, um, appearances, theophanies, that sort of thing, all of the above, you know, teaching that's related to him in some way, that this is throughout the Old Testament. And I think this is a very exciting thing to study. I think there's something about it that just ministers to our spirit. Like when you're getting to, to Jesus in the Old Testament, there's something very exciting about it. It's also, I think, neglected. I think that we tend to not do this very much. And when you think about it, you're like, yeah, you know, I'll I'll study a whole book of the the Old Testament and not necessarily be thinking that much about this issue. Or maybe not be equipped with the ability to think very well about the issue. Like, I don't know, how, how am I supposed to do this? How do I know I'm not just making stuff up? I'm not just like finding Jesus right? The, the, the way I, you know, discover like an imaginary friend, like, how do I know I'm not doing that? And so I want to talk about that as well. Because this is also, not only is it exciting and neglected, it's also a little dangerous. Because in a sense, we're almost telling people, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do this, but we're, we're almost telling people read between the lines. And I've heard people say some interesting things. You know, and sometimes I heard one person put it this way. Sometimes you're thinking, when they, when they go to the Old Testament, they find some passage where it's referencing Jesus, at least in their opinion, and you think to yourself, is my pastor on to something? Or is my pastor on something? <laughs> because, because I'm like going, I don't know about that, buddy. Um, so one of the things I want to do is I want to look at, for instance, are there rules in Scripture for how we find Jesus in Scripture? That's one of the things we'll look at as we go in this series in the last several weeks. Um, so let me let me give you kind of a brief overview, since this is the first in this series. I, I don't like introductions. I just like jumping right into content. But, but I'm going to give you the brief overview today and make a, a couple important points so we can get started right. Um, today we're going to lay foundations. Uh, we're just going to establish the fact that it is, in fact, a New Testament teaching that Jesus is throughout the Old Testament in pictures and types and all sorts of different ways, even allegories. In the, in the scripture. So <clears throat> that's, that's today. After this, we're going to start to look, not at the Old Testament, we're going to start to look at how the New Testament does this. So we'll look at, say, the book of Matthew and how Matthew uses the word fulfilled when it talks about the Old Testament, because Matthew does it more than any of the other gospels, right? Then we will look at maybe the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews is all about typology and all about Jesus in the Old Testament. And what we're going to do is we're going to sort of sit back and say, look, some of these New Testament authors have already done the work for us. We're going to look at examples of uh, types of Christ throughout the scriptures. I'll, one week, we'll just do a bunch of types of Christ. I'll, we'll look at Melchizedek, and we'll look at the rock that was struck, and we'll look at, you know, we'll, we'll just, in fact, what we'll specifically do is look at types of Christ that are clearly identified as types in the New Testament. And while we're doing this, what I'm going to try and do, God willing, is pull out principles that we can use so that then when we get into the Old Testament for ourselves, we can say, this really is about Jesus. Because in the same way that the, that the New Testament uses the Old, we're using the Old. So we're trying to draw principles. Um, 
So then after we've gotten these principles from the New Testament, we're going to go into Genesis and then we'll do our series, Jesus in Genesis, with all that sort of, you know, skill that we've, that we've now obtained from the New Testament. This is, this is what really excites me. So we're going to go to the New Testament to obtain our methodology for how we find Jesus in the old. Then we'll go to the old and do it. It's going to take approximately 800 weeks. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I don't know how many weeks this will take. I can't predict exactly how long it'll be because I can't prepare the entire thing in one sitting and then, and then teach it over all those weeks. So really I have to, I've made kind of a general lesson plan and I'll be spending the time and I'll be learning this with you and then coming and sharing it with you. I don't, I don't even pretend to be the guy that has the corner on the market on this issue, but I will spend many hours preparing the content to the best of my ability, using the best of whatever God's given me, giftings and teaching and that sort of thing to understand it, break it down into something simple and bring it to us for our consumption <laughs> so we can use it, make something good out of it. So um, there is a, um, uh, there's a couple different ways of approaching this, right? You can do this Jesus in the Old Testament thing to prove Christ, or you can do it to know Christ. I'm going to do it here to know Christ. That's the focus here. I've done this to prove Jesus already in the Evidence for the Bible series. So my focus here isn't to go, I have to have an ironclad case. I have to have a lot of really strict rules for showing that this is about Jesus. So the the rules for prophecy. I did that already in the Evidence for the Bible uh, series. Instead, we're doing this to know Jesus. This is like an in-house thing as Christians. We're going, we're already believers. We already believe the Bible. We just want to understand it better. So taking the Bible as one book, that's where we're starting. Now you could use this as a cumulative case because we're going to see Jesus so thoroughly in the Old Testament. And you could go, well, you're just making that up. Well, the thing is other people have tried this. Joseph Smith, for instance, he tried to find himself in the Old Testament. And it's laughable the way he did it. Right? We find Jesus clearly in the Old Testament. This is not a fabrication. This is not made up. The, the old and new are definitely part of a progressive revelation of God. And um, <clears throat> let me deal with one possible objection. Um, we're, and I'll talk more about this in, in future weeks. But we're worried about the word allegory. At least most of us who care a lot about verse-by-verse teaching, we're worried about the word allegory. And the reason is because when you allegorize scripture it becomes incredibly flexible. Like you can almost do anything you want with scripture. And so people who teach verse by verse and who care very much about getting the verse in context, we tend to be a little bit hesitant to use things like allegory. But when it comes to Jesus in the Old Testament, I think allegory is divinely approved. But not any allegory and not reckless allegory. And that's what we'll get into. I'll explain this stuff. So we can hopefully open ourselves to this sort of concept. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, I'm going to compare two authors you may be familiar with. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. I don't know. I forget what J.R.R. stands for. John Ron Ron Tolkien. And uh, I don't know. But J.R.R. Tolkien, he wrote the well-known book, right? The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings was actually originally one book. I'm definitely a, uh, a Lord of the Rings fan myself, as many of some of you guys are actually, maybe not many of you. Um, now he wrote originally as one book and the time he wrote it was around the time of World War II. And so people, they saw these two sides, good and evil, and they started drawing analogies or allegories to World War II, the Axis and Allies. And they started seeing like, here we've got We've got the elves and the dwarves and the men and they're coming together and the people of Rohan and that's like America coming late to the battle when they come in with the horses and the Battle of Helm's Deep. See, I'm a nerd. Now, J.R. Tolkien is interesting because he comes out and says, um, no, 
That's not an allegory. That's a coincidence. He writes in the foreword of one of the editions of the Lord of the Rings. He goes, this is not allegory. I detest allegory. And he tells us his goal in writing Lord of the Rings. Would you like to hear? Did you know what his goal was? He said, I wanted to see if I could write a really long book. And it was originally written as one book, not three, not a trilogy. The publisher split it into three books. He had it as one giant book. That was his goal. And if you've ever read it, which I have, you, you'll, you'll get into why. Why is he describing this mountain for three pages when they're just running past it? It's not even really part of the story. And it's Because like, he's like, longer is better. You know, that's his goal. Um, now, C.S. Lewis. Let me come along with C.S. Lewis. So, so my point here is, if you go into J.R.R. Tolkien looking for allegory, you're making it up. It's not coming from the author. However, C.S. Lewis is a totally different story, isn't he? He wrote something called the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, when C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, his stated goal was allegory. He wanted to write a children's book that would teach them truths about the doctrines of Christianity, truths about Jesus. So Aslan is a deliberate, purposeful picture of Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia. When I go to the Chronicles of Narnia and I look for allegory, I have full permission from the author to do so. Because the author has said, that was why I wrote it. When you go to the Old Testament and you look for pictures of Jesus, you have the approval of the author. Because God's Holy Spirit is divinely inspired that Jesus is in the Old Testament in pictures and allegories in all these various ways. And so when we go to the New, what we're learning as we'll study it is we're learning how he went about putting Jesus in the old, conceptually, in all these different ways. So, we're going to start today by now, just now that you have the idea, that's the big overview of what we're doing. Uh, now we're going to start, if you would turn to Luke chapter 4, <clears throat> and we're going to start with Jesus' own mouth. Starting with the mouth of Jesus, we're going to listen to what, before we do anything else, what did Jesus say about Jesus in the Old Testament? About how to find him there. Um, and I will tell you guys, uh, I am now moving, at least for the sake of this particular series, we're moving to the ESV translation. So we've been doing New King James for quite a long time. In my own studies, I've slowly been moving away from the idea of wanting to use the New King James as my regular Bible, but I'm having a hard time studying other translations thoroughly enough to know if I want to like lock myself in. So we're just going to go to the ESV for the experience. It's like we're going to try it out, try it in this series. It'll give me a lot of time of studying with that particular translation. We may go to it permanently. Um, I couldn't tell you for sure yet. Now, if you have the free phone apps that have the Bible, you probably got a free ESV on your phone or on your, on your iPad or computer. That's fine. Or you could uh, buy one um, and that'd be fine as well. <clears throat> but, uh, but anybody who's bothered by this, it's not a conspiracy. I want the best we can have available to us for our purposes and something that's faithful to the word of God. Um, I will put a link in this video description to the um, uh, evidence for the Bible series, the part where I talk about Bible translations. So I could explain that in more detail in another video. It's there. Um, it's just called, um, I forget what it's called. What did I name that video anyways? The Bible translations, like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a few videos I did on that. So anyways, that research is all available online. It's free. But let's dig in now. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is from Jesus' own mouth. And look at, look at how he gives us a foundation for this whole idea. Here's the author, right? He's telling us, he's telling us what, uh, what we should look for. And he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. 
and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And I'll read in a moment what he read, but the, the scene is set. It's this. Jesus shows up at the synagogue. It's normal procedure at the synagogue. Synagogue is a, a gathering, probably a smaller gathering, of a local gathering of Jewish men who would come together, and sometimes Gentile converts, and they come together to be able to, to read the scriptures. Everybody didn't have their own Bible. They gather together. One of the things they did is they would have a daily reading or a, or a weekly reading. So he opens up to the, to, the, to the reading of that day. They hand him the scroll. Different guys would, would stand up to read. This time it's Jesus' turn, or so it seems. And then verse 18, here's what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, this is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what he does next is is so cool. He rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. And then it says he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. The idea is like, you're not supposed to be done yet. Like there's more reading to be done. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus doesn't even bother interpreting it as far as what it means, except to tell them, and that just happened. Like he reads it and says, that was, yes, that was literally about me. Right now, in this moment, what Isaiah wrote, the spirit of the Lord was upon me. These were words he wrote, so I could say them to you right now. Fulfilled. Check mark. (laughs) Done. Accomplished. That is a huge thing. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus sees himself as stepping into the fulfillment of ancient scriptures that were about the Messiah. We'll get more into this uh, as we do as we go today. So John 5 is the next passage we'll look at. John 5. John 5 verse 39. We're also going to be looking at a couple other verses in John 5. It says, um, I'll give you guys a moment to get there. I'm excited about this, so I'm just going to talk really fast. We'll listen. You listen fast, and we'll, be, we'll all be even. <clears throat> John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Look at the contrast he draws. He's like, okay, Jewish men, you're searching the scriptures. You're thinking that you'll get eternal life by searching the scriptures, but the scriptures aren't going to give you eternal life. They're going to tell you about me, and I am going to give you eternal life. The purpose of the scriptures is not to give you life. It's to point you to Jesus who gives you life. Now he includes, I mean, inclusively the scriptures. That's just referencing the Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi. And he says, yeah, they bear witness about me. So what then should I expect as I read the Old Testament? I should expect them to bear witness of Jesus according to Jesus. Now, at this point, there's a skeptic who might be listening in thinking like, yeah, but prove it's from Jesus. And I'm like, that's a different study. One of my issues sometimes with sometimes skeptics is that they want you to stop all of your Bible studies and only do apologetics, only prove the Bible. All you can do all day long is prove the Bible. You know, in the passage in Nazareth, they're like, well, how do you know Nazareth really had a Jewish group of people there? How do you know Jesus knew how to read? How do you know he went to the synagogue in this? How do you know they would let him read that scroll? Everything's so skeptical that they can't actually do theology. So we're going we're gonna to put the brakes on that, and we're going to be now. Because I know I, online I have plenty of viewers who are skeptics like that. I'll say, just pause for a second and do theology for a moment and understand the Christian view, if nothing else. 
But what I should expect, according to Jesus, is that all through the scriptures, there's witnessing of Jesus. Does this mean every verse? There are some who think it's every verse, every chapter. It's in between the, in between the words. It's the words themselves. It's the verse numbers, which were added later by other people. <laughs> and I, I'm not saying that, but we should see throughout the scriptures, testimony of Jesus. In John 5.45, Jesus goes on. He says in that same conversation with them, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? According to Jesus, Moses wrote of who? Jesus. I'm getting excited about reading Moses now. Moses refers to, they could use him to use that term to refer to a lot of things, but specifically here, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and please bird, don't Deuteronomy. Sorry. Too much coffee. Moses wrote of me. Now I'm excited. That means Leviticus has stuff about Jesus. Yes. That's what that means. Yes, that's what that means. And this is legitimized by Christ himself. So there are a variety of ways we'll see this. There are clear things. There are unclear things. There are things that, didn't, that were there that were not, didn't become clear until you realized what they were about, until Jesus comes. And then it's like you go back and you understand it better. Um, so that, of course, is all there. Um, so we have Isaiah being quoted. We have the scriptures being about Jesus according to him We have in general. And we have Moses wrote of him. And that Moses wrote enough about Jesus to make these Jewish guys accountable to know who he was. Well, that's interesting because he hadn't even died and risen yet. Yet, you'd believe me. Now, one thing they had is they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' many miracles and the wonderful signs he was doing. And of course, the scripture talks about, uh, in Deuteronomy, we'll get there eventually one day. <laughs> in Deuteronomy, it talks about the prophet that was to come and all this other stuff. So there was literally enough about Jesus in the Pentateuch to make them accountable for knowing who he was, according to him. Um, now let's skip ahead in Jesus's, the timeline of Jesus, right? He comes, he dies on the cross, he rises again, and yet he has not yet ascended. It's that 40-day period where he's on the earth doing all kinds of teaching, apparently. And here we are, Luke 24. Turn to Luke 24, please. This is what's called the road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus. Um, we call this the road to Emmaus because it happened while they were on a road that led to Emmaus. Mystery solved. Luke 24, verse 13. After the resurrection of Jesus, in fact, this is right after, this is like that day. It says, that very day, that would be the day of the resurrection, <clears throat> verse 13 here, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other, about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So they're discussing like, oh, the crucifixion and our hope was set upon Christ. And like, and then they're starting to hear rumors and stories that he's risen, but they don't yet believe them. Verse 16, and this is really interesting. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus draws near, he's, he's resurrected, and their eyes can't see him. It doesn't say he was unrecognizable physically. It says their eyes couldn't. So the, the, the problems with their eyes, as though God supernaturally kept them from understanding who they were looking at. Keep that in mind. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, 
answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. So they recount the story as it was at the moment, right? And so you're right there in the moment, verse 25. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, oh, foolish ones. And he rebukes them. Listen to the rebuke. It's really interesting. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He doesn't just say that they were foolish for not believing the report of the women. In a sense, he does this with um, uh, Thomas. When Thomas doesn't believe the report of the other disciples and, and, the, and, and, and the women. But in here, he highlights a different issue. He says, slow and hard to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, maybe not everything was clear. But there are very clear statements in scripture about the coming Messiah who will suffer and die. Along with the coming Messiah who will rule and reign. That there was a minority group, even at the time, of Jewish leadership or Jewish thinkers who thought maybe there's two messiahs, one suffers and dies and one rules and reigns because it was hard for them to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Oh, they were ready for the ruling and reigning. God, I'm ready for heaven, but I don't know if I'm ready for what it takes to get there. You know, I'm ready for glory. I'm just not ready for the glory of life that comes oftentimes before that. And so in the same sense, it's like they didn't believe everything that was written. There is a danger that we need to avoid, and that's in believing selectively parts of Christianity that we like and leaving aside other ones that maybe we have a harder time with because of whatever whatever the reasons, my life situation, the culture I'm in, just the way I think. Um, it's really healthy if you know that you're in a place where if you have an idea in your head and you read in scripture that it's wrong, that you'll change your idea. That's like... This is like just how it's supposed to be, you know, like I'm supposed to let myself come underneath the authority of God and change my opinions based upon scripture. And I try to do this, but I know personally it can be a struggle and sometimes a process as you are encountered with things in scripture and you go, this isn't where I would, like, I wouldn't have wrote it that way, Lord. Like, and, and the foolishness that I'm experiencing in my heart when I think this, but yet I've thought that, I've thought that, and then I changed my mind because I was being a fool. <laughs> And so we should be doing that. Um, so he, he rebukes them because they didn't believe everything. Now, he goes on in verse 26. He continues. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And we can think here of things like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that talk about the suffering servant, that talk about the one who bears the sins of others and even dies and then enters into glory. And so Jesus is like, you should have known. You should have known. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, yeah, this is like, if we could trade this Bible study series for Jesus and what he said to these guys in English on the road to Emmaus, (laughs) 
probably I need it in English. Sorry. Um, I would absolutely make that trade. Jesus is literally doing a study series with them on this seven mile walk called Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's, and it's, <laughs> this actually, now you might be like, I missed out and it bugs me. I missed out on this, but this might actually be the source of some of the New Testament stuff. Do you not think these guys went and told everybody all that stuff that Jesus said? Do you not think that maybe perhaps this influenced the writing of Hebrews or that this influenced second Corinthians when he talks about typology of Jesus or that it affected something else? Matthew writing his gospel. We may actually have some of the exact content Jesus shared with these guys in our new Testament here today. Um, that's quite possible. Um, so really neat, really cool stuff. But notice how he did it. It says beginning with Moses or starting at Moses, that's Genesis. And then he continues through all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, all the scriptures. So we have Moses, the prophets and the writings. This definitely includes Genesis through Malachi, the entire Old Testament. And he does a survey through there. He didn't have the scrolls with him. He, you know, he, he knows the scripture, don't worry. <laughs> and, he, and he just shares with them this, 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 pictures of Jesus, uh, prophecies of Jesus, explanations, um, analogies or allegories and foreshadowings and all this kind of stuff. According to Jesus, Jesus in the Old Testament is something that's legitimate. It's a good study to do. That's all I'm saying. Um, verse 28, we continue. It says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going to farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And verse 31 is really interesting. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So just like their eyes were kept from recognizing him, now the opposites happened. Their eyes are opened, not that they were physically closed, but there was something keeping them from seeing who Jesus was. So now they see Jesus for who he is, and he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he, listen, opened the scriptures to us. This is the effect of a Jesus in the Old Testament study. It's the opening of the scriptures. This is the point, guys. Once you realize that C.S. Lewis was drawing an allegory with the Chronicles of Narnia, you go back over the story in your head and you go, that's like when they cut his hair and, oh, and he, the older law that, oh, I get, and the white, oh, I, and it's all like click, 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 and it opens it up to you. And the same thing is true of the Bible of the Old Testament when you see Jesus through it. It's not an added later idea. It's the original purpose. It's the original design. Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, I also think it's really interesting too. There's there's kind of an uh, uh, an allegory within the passage <laughs> that I'll point out if I can. Um, you might wonder why were they really kept from recognizing him? First off, right, we noticed we noticed it was their eyes that couldn't see him. It wasn't that he was unrecognizable. It was they were unable to recognize. So it was on them, not him. So I don't think it had to do with some disfigurement or something of Jesus. I wouldn't. That's not what the text seems to say. But there's a parallel. If you look at verse 16. And then verses 31 and 32, let me read those to you real quick, and I'll look at this parallel. It says, but their eyes were open, or excuse me, verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then verse uh, 31 and 32, um, I have that somewhere here in my notes. Ah, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? When they started their journey to Emmaus, they knew the Old Testament, but didn't understand Jesus in the Old Testament. They meet Jesus, they, they're with him, but they don't know it. 
by the end of the journey, the scriptures are open and they can see Jesus in the Old Testament and they can see Jesus right in front of them. I think it's a picture of how Jesus says, when you, when you open up your eyes and you see me in the Bible, you see me. And I think that's a really neat picture. So I get excited about this stuff. Forgive me. Um, really awesome stuff. In verse 35, it tells you uh, one more tidbit about when they noticed him. It says, then they told what had happened on the road. They, they go back to the disciples and, and it says, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. The thing that really unlocks who Jesus is and his whole purpose is when you understand his sacrifice. This is my body broken for you. And when you come to the realization that this is about God sending his son to die on the cross for our sins, now you, now you get it. And the light bulb goes on and you understand who he is. In seeing the crucifixion, the light goes on. Um, so the point here is Jesus is throughout the Old Testament ready to be discovered. And he seems to talk about it like it's something that you should be noticing as you read through the Bible. And um, now what I want to do is let's look a little bit at uh, some other passages. We're going to look at the book of Acts. So the preaching in the book of Acts reflects this whole idea that Jesus was in the Old Testament. It wasn't just like a side note. It was actually really important to them. So in Acts chapter 2, we have the first, what, what we call the first preachment in Acts. You might want to use that fancy word on somebody. It's a preachment. Um, it's just when Peter, he preaches the first open gospel message in Acts 2. And I won't read it because it's a little long for us today, but he quotes multiple prophecies in that opening message. He's like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And he starts quoting Old Testament prophecies and how, how they relate to Christ. In the second preachment in Acts 3 verse 18, we read this. The second time he, Peter's preaching the gospel openly, it says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So he's hanging his preaching upon Old Testament teaching. It's not an afterthought, it's a foundational thought. Jesus in the Old Testament here is a foundational thought. I'm trying to drive home how important this issue is. Um, as you continue that same preachment, Acts 3 verse 21 it says, whom heaven must receive until the time of res- for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, and now he's quoting Moses, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Peter's just doing what Jesus said, right? He's like, look, this has all been predicted throughout the prophets. Both Moses and all the prophets talked about the stuff we've just experienced. Jesus coming, Jesus doing that that life of ministry, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus rising from the dead, and now forgiveness being preached in his name. Yeah. Yeah, that's in all of the prophets. Verse 25, he says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is just steeped in the idea that Peter is using the Old Testament to preach Jesus to these guys. And um, he's all through it. So the, the, the next preachment is in Acts chapter 4. And here we have it in verse, verses 10 and 11 of Acts 4. It says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man standing before you is well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This is a quote from Psalm 118. And so he talks about Jesus, how he was crucified. And then he, now if you've ever studied Psalm 118, it's just like a really amazing messianic psalm. And especially the last portion of the psalm is like, just, it deserves a careful verse by verse study. It's like this really neat pictures of Jesus and stuff throughout the psalm. And Peter recognized that and he used it to preach uh, to them. I mean, when Jesus was on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22 as if to draw attention to the very psalm that talked about him doing the very thing that he was doing while he was quoting the psalm that talked about him doing it. I don't think I can say that again. Um, do you do you see the pattern? Acts 2, the first preachment, Jesus in the Old Testament. The second preachment, Acts 3, Jesus in the Old Testament. The third preachment, Acts 4, Jesus in the Old Testament. Do you doubt the pattern? Well, look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Look at how consistently this sort of thing is in the New Testament church. <clears throat> it says, And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, the Christ is Jesus. Now, here's where a lot of times us Gentiles miss the point. The thing that they were teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching, teaching has to do with explaining, preaching has to do with proclaiming. They did both. And the thing that they were teaching and preaching was that the Christ is Jesus. Now, Christ is a title, not a name. The Christ is the Messiah. And in that first century Jewish time that they were in, right, in that area, if you said someone is the Christ, you were saying, there, are, there is this person the Old Testament has said is coming, and he will do all these glorious things. And his, the teaching about the Messiah, the Christ, is throughout the Old Testament. And guess what? Jesus is that guy. So this is what he was doing. He was, he was daily in the temple and from house to house, he was going around showing Jesus in the Old Testament. That was the normal thing that they did. And every time you see the term Christ, it's a very significant thing in the scripture. Um, realize that it's a claim about the identity of Christ. The identity of Jesus, I should say. Um, okay, Acts chapter 7. In Act, so we're just doing a survey of Acts looking for where they reference this teaching about Jesus in the Old Testament. So in Acts chapter 7, I won't read the whole thing, but Stephen, he gives an address right before they stone him. They kill him. And if you read through his address, his long address, it's like, what's he doing? He's talking about like genealogies and stuff. Like, what's he talking about? And you realize he's literally teaching them about Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's how he's preaching to them. There's all these parallels he gives between Jesus and the deliverers of the Old Testament. And this is a case for allegory, a case for pictures of Christ. How we see Moses, and Stephen uses Moses as an example. Moses went to the people of Israel the first time, and they rejected him. Then he came to them a second time, and they received him. And he gives a list of other people who the first time they came, they were rejected by the people. And the second time they were received, and he says, don't you know? You've rejected the Messiah, just like you rejected all those guys. And he's drawing parallels between their lives and the life of Messiah. I would go so far as to say that was the point of their life, was the life of Jesus. That the goal, the target, the rest of the stuff was was made to happen so that it might reflect Christ. In Acts chapter 8, we read about this eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, who's on a journey. He goes to Jerusalem to worship. He's been converted. um, And he is on his way back to Ethiopia, and he's got a scroll, and the scroll is of Isaiah. And he's reading the scroll from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, this beautiful messianic passage about the suffering servant who dies for our sins. And um, in Acts 8, 53... Uh, he's he's meeting Philip and Philip comes up and Philip notices that, that the guy's got the scroll out and he goes, do you understand what you're reading right now? 
And the guy says, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And then it says in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So we have this guy who's, who's become saved, gets to know Christ because he's just reading the Old Testament. And then a believer comes alongside and shows him, do you see it? Do you see Jesus here in the Old Testament? Again, I mean, it's, it, so far it's in almost every chapter of Acts, this concept. In, uh, in Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul. And after Saul gets converted, Saul was one of those guys who, when he, when he came to Christ, he just kind of hit the ground running, serving the Lord and ministering to people and witnessing. And um, <clears throat> whereas some people, they come to Christ and go into hiding, which is probably not a good idea. Um, but Acts 9.22 says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. And how did he confound them? By proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he just goes into Jesus in the Old Testament. I mean, he knew his Bible well. And so when he came to know who Jesus was, it's like it all became open to him and he got it. So he would literally have discussions and debates about Jesus in the Old Testament. And he proved that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ of the scripture. Interesting. Um, When Peter meets Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, do you see the pattern yet? Am I belaboring this too much? I'm not done. There's more. <laughs> I could do more than we're doing even. Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile and God has sent Peter there to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles to show that God will wash clean anyone who puts faith in Jesus. You don't have to become a Jew for it. You can just put your faith in Jesus. And uh, Acts chapter 10, 43, here's what Peter says to Cornelius. He says to him, to Jesus, all the prophets, all every prophet, All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets bear witness of Jesus and trusting in him. That's what Peter said. That was what the New Testament believed. That's what Jesus thought. This is is very Christian, guys. Jesus in the Old Testament. This is the author's intent. And so I'm I'm stoked getting ready to do this this, uh, series. But let's keep going. In Acts chapter 13... We have Paul, and he's at the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia. There's multiple Antiochs. He's at the one in Pisidia. Not that you'll remember that or care about it that much, but that's technically where he is, right? Antioch in Pisidia. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 14, it says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law, which was the standard thing, they're reading a text, um, and the prophets the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now what just happened is Paul, as far as they're concerned, Paul is a traveling rabbi, right? Paul was still the rabbi when he got saved. He's still a Jew. Like as, as any Jew is when they get saved, they're still a Jew, you know? You're just a completed Jew. You have, you're messianic now. You believe in the Messiah. So they've got a traveling rabbi. They read the text and then they have a time for people to share. So they're like, hey, we got our guest over here, Paul and, the, and his group. Do you guys have anything to share? And Paul's like, well, in fact, I do. You know? So he gets up and he shares. And he says, men and brother, listen to me. And what he begins in Acts 13 is an Old Testament Bible study proclaiming Jesus. He doesn't just say, God loves you. Jesus paid for your sins. He actually establishes it with scripture. I'm not saying you always have to do this, but that's the example that we've been given here and we can learn from it. In Acts 13, 27, we we read some of the things he said. 
Um, this is for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. If they had got it, if they realized who Jesus was, if they understood the Old Testament properly, they never would have done that to Jesus because they would have not have wanted to be part of such a thing. But they didn't get it. But, but what he says is they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets. That's what the prophets meant originally. Uh, they read every Sabbath. They fulfilled the prophets by condemning him because the prophets said that that would happen. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So you see that the idea that it was all written ahead of time is very integrated in the preaching of Jesus, in the preaching of Peter, in the preaching of Paul. It was Paul's normal custom to do this, to do Jesus in the Old Testament studies when he traveled around to the different synagogues. Acts chapter 17 actually talks about how he did this all the time. It was like his, his normal method of operation. Acts 17 verse 1, it says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, a gathering of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. This is his custom now. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He did Bible studies, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's the Christ. So he reasoned with, with them, reasoned with them. He was like, you see this text? Now you think about what Jesus did. You see this text? This is what Jews for Jesus does today in Israel. They literally go around and say, hey, can we reason with you from the scriptures to show you that Jesus is the Messiah? And they show Isaiah 53 and they show Psalm 22 and they show these other various passages. Um, in Acts chapter 17, again, we have the Bereans. The Bereans are a really interesting group. It says the, in verse 10 of Acts 17, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they'd arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. It was his normal thing. I'm going to go to the synagogue. I'll start there. I'll share with the Jews that are gathered about Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, we always use the Bereans as our example of good Bible study habits, right? You don't just take my word for it. You like go, is that really what the text says? And that's good. That's healthy. But if we look at it in context, they were specifically checking to see if Jesus was in fact the Messiah. So they were able to, through Bible study of the Old Testament, confirm the identity of Jesus, and then they put their faith in him. That's pretty neat, if you ask me. Um, Verse 12, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. What a great thing to do. Do you doubt do you go, how do I know Jesus really is who he... I think it's interesting is that uh, you quote Isaiah 53 to people. Just just hold it up. I actually, it's like, actually Isaiah 52, like verse 13, all the way through 53. But just bring it to somebody and let them read it. And then ask, who do you think this is about? And they'll be like, well, obviously that's about Jesus. And then just let them know that it was written, you know, 600 years before Jesus. I think that kind of matters. Like, this is neat. This is amazing stuff. Of course, that's in my evidence for the Bible series. Um, but you see that the, the pattern here. In Acts 18.4, Paul's at Corinth, and it says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. How? The same method. He would use the Old Testament to preach Jesus. In Acts 18.5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 
So it's just consistent, consistent, consistent. This is what he does. Now, there is an anomaly here because you might ask, do I have to use Jesus in the Old Testament in my evangelism? Is that what it's saying in Acts? And I don't think so. Um, you can, though. Obviously, you can. They do. But do you have to? In Acts chapter 17, I think there's another example in Acts as well. Um, Paul goes to the Gentile audience. And when he's there in Athens speaking to the Gentile audience, he actually doesn't use Jesus in the Old Testament as his method of convincing them of who Jesus is. He uses the conscience and he uses the testimony of the resurrection. So the conscience, their awareness of God, he rebukes them for their idols. And then he uses their awareness of, uh, of the fact that they have moral guilt and the foolishness of idolatry. And then he talks to them about the resurrection of Jesus. So it's just interesting how there's different tactics for different groups of people in the book of Acts. If we're thinking about how to outreach and how to evangelize. Um, people often will, will pick one method of evangelism and elevate it as the only single possible method or way. It may be a legitimate method and it may be very good, but scripture seems to involve a couple different angles to different groups of people. Um, but yes, but if we're to be Christians and we're to want to understand the word of God, then we're going to need to look at Jesus in the Old Testament. If I want to know him better, if I want to understand the Old Testament at all, I really need to see Jesus in it. So this is, this is a worthwhile study, a very worthwhile study. Um, Apollos is, a, I'll give you um, one more example. There's actually more I could give. I'll just give one more. Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verse 28, it says, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus, or excuse me, that the Christ was Jesus. Again, it's the Messiah of the Old Testament is Jesus. And he proved it. Paul had open public debates about the identity of this Old Testament Messiah and proved that it was Jesus. And that was his method of outreach. So that's Acts. Let's look at some of the epistles. <laughs> I told you today we're laying a foundation. We're showing how important it is and how throughout the scripture, this is a big deal. And perhaps a neglected area of Bible study, at least somewhat neglected uh, in, in, all, in a lot of our lives, um, probably even in my own, if I, if I must admit to having one failing, one little failing in my entire life, I'll admit to it, I guess. Um, yeah, I know it's definitely neglected in my own. I'm, I'm excited about getting into this because I will be studying it with you just a few days before you, because <laughs> I'll come and share it afterward. Um, so in the epistles, okay, first let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is, has what's called a creed. This was like the first New Testament creed. We often think about creeds like, you know, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or you name it. There's different creeds and different churches hold to different creeds, that sort of thing. This is actually the, the creed that we find in the Bible. It's not the only one, I don't think, but it's definitely a creed and the first creed we find in the scripture. So a creed is a formulated doctrine put into like a slogan or statement or a, basically this is exactly how we want to say it and we're locking it in with these words. So this creed goes back to, um, pretty much most people agree, within five years of the crucifixion of Jesus. So this creed goes back to before the writing of the First Corinthians book itself, before the writing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. This is ancient, ancient Christian content. First Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here's the creed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It was important enough to include it in the creed. That it was in the scriptures that Jesus would die, would be buried, and would raise again. That this is all according to the scriptures. 
in Romans 1, <clears throat> 1 through 3, Paul lays out the gospel in the beginning of, we just finished our series on Romans, so this might be fresh on some of your guys' minds. Um, we were in Romans 1, I mean, just like a little over a year ago, so it should be really fresh. Uh, Romans 1, verse 1 through 3, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and listen to how he describes the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And then he goes on. It's, it's, it's all Old Testament, man. The New Testament is Old Testament. That's the point. I like the phrase, the, uh, the New Testament, what's in the New Testament concealed or in the Old Testament concealed, excuse me, is in the New Testament revealed. It's a nice way of considering these things. Um, We are seeing a flow of thought. At the end of Romans, we went over this actually last week, Romans 16, verse 25 and 26, it says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and these words are so neat, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed to us, And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, this implies something. We can take notice. We're not just saying here that Jesus is in the Old Testament. We're saying more than that. This passage is saying that what was... Okay, there's clear indications of Jesus in the Old Testament. But once Jesus comes, dies and rises, all of a sudden, we know what to look for. So now when we go back and we look at the text, it's disclosed. It's been opened to us. You can know more now than they could know before Jesus came. You can have a greater understanding of the Old Testament than you could have before Jesus came. For several reasons. We have, we have Jesus as the model. We know what we're looking for when we look there. We also have the New Testament writings as examples and instructions on how to do this and how many times they tell us was fulfilled, was fulfilled, was fulfilled, that sort of content. So two more passages, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit. <laughs> we'll, we'll call it for tonight. So Revelation 19, this is interesting. Revelation 19.10, there's just this statement at the end of Revelation 19.10 that is very profound about the nature of prophecy, the very nature of prophecy. And prophecy here, not just speaking that I'm telling you the future exactly, but that I'm proclaiming in the name of God, like prophetically, I'm speaking as a prophet. And Revelation 19.10, it recounts uh, an issue between an angel and John. It says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, this angel. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's interesting, huh? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The very nature, the very function, the very purpose the spirit of the prophecy is that it's about Jesus. That's the point. It's actually the main point of the text. Jesus is literally the key to understanding the Old Testament. And once you know who Jesus is, it unlocks the Old Testament for you. And that's the last verse we'll get into today, which is 2 Corinthians 3. Um, I think this relates directly to what we're talking about today. I don't know if you've ever read this verse in this context. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16 It says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the analogy here is that it's interesting because here's a Jesus in the Old Testament analogy, right? Is that Moses, when he went into the tabernacle, he was there so near God's glory that he came out and he glowed or he had some sort of manifestation of God's glory coming off of his skin. 
So he wore a veil. And the reason for the veil, according to the scripture, is so that they would not see the glory fading. The glory was fading. It was temporary. He was in God's presence, then he came and it would fade. And that this is like an analogy to the idea that Moses or the law was meant to point you to Christ, but it it was going to fade in some sense as it delivered you over to Jesus. But he then describes the veil. I'm giving you the context of 2 Corinthians 3. He describes this veil as being upon the heart of the unsaved person as they read the Old Testament, particularly the Jew who's actually reading the Old Testament. And that the veils on their heart, they're, they're reading it but not comprehending. They're like many of the Jews of Jesus' time. Reading it, which is probably, I would have been one of them. You know, They're like reading it but not getting it. Reading it but not seeing Jesus in it as though there's some veil, something blocking them from seeing the glory of Christ. But, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil's removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Um, I, you know what? I, I meant, I think I meant to put in also a couple verses before that, so let me actually turn there real quick. Because I don't want us to miss this point kind of important like everything i say ever okay maybe not everything <laughs> but it's definitely important okay is that new testament Old testament first corinthians second corinthians okay so second corinthians chapter three um <clears throat> look at the description of, of how when they're reading the old testament and they don't see jesus there's a veil but when they read the old testament and they do see jesus the veil is removed that's the context um, so second corinthians chapter three Um, We'll start looking at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then you see what? You see the purpose. You see the point. It's not like you don't get the Bible at all without Jesus. You just don't get the point. (laughs) You don't get the main point. You're reading Chronicles of Narnia, but you're not realizing it's all an allegory. The whole point is it it refers to Jesus. So we intend to, with unveiled face, look at the Old Testament and see the glory of Christ. Um, So I have some questions I want to try to answer in this series now that I've laid out the foundation. Um. What rules are there that we can get from Scripture? When I look at the New Testament and see how it does these allegories and these pictures of Jesus, can I bring this into like sort of, can I systematize it a little bit and go, here's like some policies I can have as I approach the Old Testament so I can faithfully see Jesus in the text or not making stuff up? Are there limits to this thing? What rules keep me from making up new theology and getting weird? How do I avoid that yet without throwing out the baby with the bathwater? You know, without throwing out the fact that Jesus is in fact the point here. So we're going to be a little bit analytical about this stuff. And um, I'm not just going to say, well, the New Testament writers were inspired. So don't try to figure out how they figured out that part. They were inspired. And I'll say, yes, I believe they were inspired, but I also think God is rational. And so maybe I can't figure out why every allusion to the Old Testament is used in the New, but it doesn't mean I can't figure out why any of them are used. Doesn't mean I can't learn something from it and apply that to my own study of the Old Testament to be able to get so much more out of it, uh, what God intended us to get the first time. Because it seems to me 
from the teaching of Jesus, from the teaching of Peter, from the teaching of Paul, from Apollos, from the New Testament uh, epistles, from the book of Revelation, it seems to me that there's an awful lot of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's not just once every three, like, books where you find, you find, oh, that's a prophecy about Christ. There's a lot more than that. So we're going to get into all that stuff. So let's pray, and, um, yeah, and we'll talk. Uh, Father God, we, we trust your word. Um, we're excited because Jesus is, the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is it. That the veil's removed, we look to the Old Testament and we look for Christ and we pray that you'd equip us with wisdom and you give us real, like, solid methodology so we could approach this thing um, from a place of safety, but also from a place of discovery. We want to see more of you, to know you better, to understand you better. We pray you'd unlock the scriptures for us um, and give us great wisdom as we study the New Testament to see how it uses the old, as we then move into the Old Testament for ourselves to try to understand how we see Jesus. We, uh, we pray for wisdom. We pray that you would open our eyes to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.